Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Dennis O'Connor. Dennis is a medical professional who is on a mission to eliminate the confusion and the mystery that surround the science of health and happiness. After 10 years of experience in intensive care, Dennis embarked on a journey which took him through sales and scuba diving and ultimately onto the treatment of addiction. Upon returning to the field of medicine, Dennis was struck by the ongoing confusion surrounding our perceptions of happiness and mental health. So drawing on his experiences outside of medicine, Dennis has been able to successfully implement methodologies which have created massive value for his clients and help them move forward through their struggles. Dennis believes that knowledge is power and it is his wish to empower people to take full control of their well-being and their happiness. And there's a huge amount of information out there about how we can most effectively do this. The problem is making sense of it all. So Dennis aims to help people do that. In this conversation, we explore Dennis's experiences in intensive care, the impact that using motivational sales techniques can have on those with addiction problems and other mental health issues, and how to effectively manage mental health issues without the use of pharmaceuticals and SSRIs. Now, this conversation is absolutely packed with actionable information, so grab a notepad and please enjoy. Now, as a small caveat, this is the first conversation that I've recorded using Zoom. Around about 40 minutes or so into the conversation, there were a few connection problems, but these do subside, so please enjoy. As well. Beautiful. As am I. Okay. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Ben. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. Very well. Thank you very much for doing this. Hopefully this... uh, this very first Zoom podcast um, works out as well as I'm hoping. I'm sure it will. And, okay, so um, we connected on LinkedIn via, funny enough, a, a post by Mark Metry of the Top 100 Humans podcast. And he was, he is obviously a very strong kind of mental health advocate. And we connected because we also share that interest. So could you give us a little bit of a background as to your what do you do in this space? Sure, and and just let you know, you you're you are kind of a little. There's a little bit of interference sometimes, so I might delay until you kind of come through properly. But uh, I think we we just have to work with it. Sure. Okay. Fantastic. So yeah, so so my I've been in health for about twenty five years now. It sounds terrible when I say that. I, I feel older than I, it seems. I'm older than I than I feel, but I started working in intensive care. Got to a fairly high level doing that, and kind of got exposed to lots of really interesting mental health stuff. From obviously grief, turning off ventilators, seeing people at the end of overdoses was quite interesting. You, you can't. We had a fairly decent mental health cohort. That we'd see kind of you know do do i guess fairly risky things so i kind of could tell you a lot of really interesting kind of sad stories about some people who didn't survive or some people who did fairly you know terrible things to themselves and 
after about 10 years of working in intensive care, to be honest with you, I did get fairly burned out because you're not only dealing with the, the, the patients you're working with, you're actually dealing with quite a very strong A class of personality. So you're kind of always battling your colleagues as well as battling um, the kind of stresses associated with the job. So I ended up kind of doing something totally different. I went into real estate sales mm. and was kind of fairly, fairly good at that, fairly successful. But that actually started me on a, on a journey of this kind of self self-help motivational type of stuff, which I'd never been exposed to before. Um, the market crashed. I got out of sales. I wanted to do something. I, I'm hugely passionate about nature. So I ended up uh, becoming a dive instructor on the Great Barrier Reef in Cairns, which was quite incredible. And unfortunately, the, the, the financial remuneration with that is, is not very good. So I kind of had to dip my toe back into an area that would, you know, prop me up a little bit more financially. So I, I stumbled into um, drug and alcohol addiction, not personally, even though I do like a few beers every so often. <laughs> so I uh, ended up working in a, in a thing called the Drug Court, which was a recidivism program for drug addicts. And I kind of got thrown in the deep end with actually teaching a CBD program, a CBT program, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And, you know, hands up here, I haven't trained in, in, in CBT, but having run, I had to run that course for about a year and a half in the end. And I'll tell, I learned so much doing this course. Um, I used to have these absolutely powerful sessions with these guys who had all sorts of drug problems. And that really shaped how I, I thought about addiction and how I thought about mental health. Then I moved into the area of acute mental health, which, and that means, you know, the, the really pointy end, acute schizophrenia assessment, suicidality, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, was, I took uh, those um, concepts of CBT with me. What I found really interesting was the, the lack of focus around addiction principles in acute mental health. I kind of went there with this idea that I had so much to learn and, and, and you know, it was a new a new journey, I guess, where where I was, uh, you know, at the bottom of the pile, and I, I wanted to learn as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't very long, probably after about six months, where I found that that maybe the the kind of my peers were not doing things as scientifically based as they could, or if they were doing it, the evidence they were doing it from was not as valid as the evidence that I was looking at. And that kind, of, that kind of feeling became more and more valid the more I was applying what I knew to clients, which kind of went against what we were doing, but I was seeing dramatic success. And what I mean by that is, is, is this very overt focus on just this part of you here, which is your head, and an almost, almost no focus whatsoever on the rest of what I call the environment, which is not just these things that are happening around you, but it's this thing that your brain is sitting in so for example so for for example this 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 focus of of the the absolute import i mean the, the the i more or less introduced the word microbiome to my team and i would have expected that when i got there that i would have been the one getting massively educated about this and not only that but it took about two to three years before this word microbiome was getting treated with any kind of seriousness so for example two three years later i'm getting people say hey that stuff you were talking about about the gut i've just seen this about it and i'm kind of thinking well that's great that you've seen this about it now why were you not as my peer telling me about the importance of this three years ago why am i coming into this area and educating people about it being the, the guy new, new, new to, the, to the whole environment.
Mm. I mean, when you um, when you initially left um, left the mental health industry, um, you mentioned that you were struggling with some some burnout, and the the personalities that you were dealing with um, tend to be type A personalities. Was that correct? So, so that was the intensive care industry, yeah. which was which is very much uh, the the kind of ventilators and you oh, know, okay. cardiac stuff. And do you think of people, some of those, of right those so, personalities? So the, aspects were were kind of ported across into into mental health as well in that you've got lots of individuals who kind of tried to rise to the top of what's quite a not so much a a popular profession but a a profession that is now receiving potentially a lot more attention than it used to be um do you think some of those personality issues are, are present within the industry yeah that, that's a really great question yes and no so they are present, but in a really kind of softer way, but, but a similarly destructive way. So it's really, it's really funny because in intensive care, you have to be really assertive. If, you're, if, you're, if you see something that's not working, you've got a couple of seconds, as you probably would know with, from, your, from your military experience, you've got a couple of seconds where you need to make a snap decision. So even as a, as a nurse, if I'm noticing something where a patient might be bleeding out, for example, or a ventilator that's not working properly, I've got to step in and I've got to override everybody, whether they're a senior consultant, whether they're a doctor, whether they're a senior nurse, I'm making that call. So the, the more confident, I guess, in your craft, the more capable you are making those calls and your credibility kind of rises a lot. That can piss people off. And you kind of have, I guess, the fallout of people trying to get you back because you pointed out their mistake in an acute, in a kind of a serious setting. And you kind of have this, this, I guess, little these battles that can build up over the years. And that actually gets really quite, quite stressful. I like to think I avoided that a lot, but I certainly was on the receiving end of, of, you know, unknowingly upsetting people and having that come back on me. In the mental health setting, it's much softer. You don't get that kind of a personality dramatic cut in, but you get this much softer approach. But it's 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 nonetheless as 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 uh, competitive uh, in the mental health setting for sure. Mm. I'm sure. I mean, everyone is going to want to be kind of the best or whatever it is that they're doing. And if you are in, I mean, in both contexts, if you are some young upstart who is seen as challenging authority or seen as challenging conventional ways of thinking, especially in an area like mental health or trauma or intensive care, then you're, you're going to stand on a few toes, I imagine. Absolutely. And, and I have done, you know, not, not deliberately, I hope, but maybe sometimes, but I, I guess I'm only human. But uh, yeah, you, you definitely come across that. So when you were when you were dealing with when you were dealing with your burnout before you left um, intensive care, what was the what was the day to day impact um, of that kind of that headspace? Sure, sure. So so I get and again now knowing what I know now, we we all look at things in hindsight, but it's really incredible that that I never knew or I never heard any of this information that I know now back then, because if I did, it would have had a dramatically different impact on, on my life. So when I look back at it now, the amount of mistakes I was making and living were, were just not, it wasn't funny. They, they just were endless. So, so 
I can look back now and know that that stressful situation was uh, was a was a was a part of why I was getting burnout. But the environment that I was creating myself was about seventy percent of the reason. Okay, and I'll explain that. So the, the the big reason I left was because I went from really quite a senior position in a place called New South Wales, which is south of Australia, where I was doing uh, nine to five work. And then I moved to Cairns, which is just this absolutely magical tropical place up the top of Australia. And I, because I moved from a senior position, I had to kind of uh, rejoin at a lower level. And that involved doing night duty. At the time, I had no idea of the disastrous effect that lack of sleep would have on your mental health. So I would, we had night duty about once a month or once every, every five or six weeks for about four or five nights. And there would be weeks where I would literally get, I'd be lucky if I got one night of four hours sleep and I'd get other nights where I'd have one or two hours. That alone can cause depression. I never knew this. Okay. I never knew about the microbiome. I never knew about the importance of diet and serotonin. So I'm eating shit, especially on night duty. Okay, I never knew about the fact that alcohol impairs sleep. So to treat my 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 lack of sleep, I'm drinking a lot. Okay, so I mean, and I could probably could go on and on about the about the these 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 amazing flaws that 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 uh, that I just had no idea about. And ironically, I'm working in health, and nobody told me this stuff. Mm. Yeah, I I think the. Um the impact of the the little things like as you were saying like sleep if you're if you're not getting enough sleep then i mean if you i think it's if you sleep for 6 hours a night for a week by the end of the week you've had the equivalent of a beer in terms of the impact it's going to have on your mental acuity your reaction time so on and so forth and then if you're extending that for a longer period of time it's going to it's going to play havoc with absolutely everything yeah, absolutely. And I think we, we, we sometimes have to be careful about some of these studies. And I think those studies are a good framework to realize the importance of sleep. But there, there is this kind of fact that people, everybody's different. And some people genuinely do perform brilliantly on less sleep. And some people don't. So, you know, I, I at that step, and, and that also changes with, with where you're at in your life as well. So back in that kind of setting, I was actually performing quite well on horrendously small amounts of sleep. But again, obviously, that the long-term effects were, were quite disastrous for my mental health. And I, I never really fell into that, 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 that um, classic anxiety, depression trap. But what I did fall into was this, this I guess, zombie-like state of just dissatisfaction and, and non-fulfillment in my life. And, and this kind of, this, this misery outlook which, which it, you know, you could say is a, is a form of depression, but uh, but uh, it'd be uh, it'd be a bit of a tough hit to to classically diagnose it as depression, even though you get a lot of doctors who would, and then they'd get, they'd suggest you take antidepressants, which again would be an absolute disaster for would have been if if that had happened to me back then. So, what would you say are the the differences between this kind of malaise where everything feels a little bit grey and a bit muted to? a clinical diagnosis of depression. What would you say the differences are between those two things? Did that come through? Yeah. 
so so I lost most of that there with the connection. I'm really sorry, Ben. So so I, I think you were saying uh, you, you, to clarify the difference between that kind of malaise that you get as opposed to that uh, that clinical depression diagnosis. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So 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 again, and, and this is and, and as I've mentioned before, to you before the podcast, I, I'm doing a mental health program to kind of clarify some of this stuff. And one of the things that I find is sometimes questions imply an answer. Okay. But sometimes we've got to we've got to dip below a question in order to realize that the question is actually very, it's a little bit misleading. And I'm not saying you gave me a misleading question by any means, okay? I'm just trying to identify something that I find happen again and again with mental health, okay? And one of the biggest problems we have in mental health is this, this concept of diagnosis, okay? Now, and I'm not too sure if you're aware of the work of a fellow called Irving Kirsch. Have you ever heard of this guy? I cannot say I have. He, he, He's absolutely brilliant. This, this guy um, inadvertently fell into being the anti-hero for depressants, antidepressants in about the, the mid-90s, okay? He's a researcher, a clinical researcher, who wanted to test how well antidepressants were working. And, uh, sorry, he wanted to test how well um, any medication would work against a placebo. So obviously the the, the kind of uh, the, the go-to medication for him to look at because it was involved in how your mind works or is the area of antidepressants. So he wasn't actually specifically going out to look at antidepressants. He was actually specifically going out to look at placebo. So he's done about 30 years of work on the placebo effect, uh, which is very, very tightly tied up with antidepressants. And his work, if anybody has mental health issues, his work is, is an absolute must it's an absolute must, and it's certainly shaped the way I think about, um, about uh, diagnosis, especially of depression. He talks about something called nocebo. Have you heard of this? Nocebo effect. Yes, I have. Yeah. Take us through it. I might have lost you here for a second, Ben. Yeah, I have. I have heard of it. I have heard of it. Could you give us an overview? Yeah, for sure. Nocebo, no, placebo me is is basically this effect that that is is derided in 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 health, which which is incredible to me because it's one of the most powerful healing mechanisms we have. The nocebo effect is the opposite. I think it's Latin for "I will harm." Nocebo, okay. And the, the nocebo effect is is essentially uh, the the idea. If you if you can think of this, and, and and lots of sociologists wrote about this back in the day, where in islands like Haiti, for example, where somebody was hexed, and they were told they'd die within six months. These guys would actually die within six months. This is recorded well enough that we can know it was valid. Okay, we also have something that's been recorded in Western medical literature on on at least three or four occasions that I know of, and probably a lot more. But there were some specific records of people being diagnosed with liver cancer, giving given six months to live. They died within that six months time period. On autopsy, they were found to have no liver cancer. Wow. Rapport with the clinician. The rapport with the clinician. Okay, and this is, this is really relevant to what Kirsch talks about in relation to placebo. The rapport with the clinician is extremely vital. If you, for, if, if for example, you really respect me as, as an eminent psychiatrist or doctor and we've got a great rapport, and I tell you you have depression, by default, I've got a 30% chance of giving you a diagnosis of depression. So, so now you can see why I diverted from that original conversation. Okay, so, so literally, 
people having diagnosis of depression, having anxiety, uh, diagnosis of anxiety, or anything for that matter, even a physical diagnosis can actually manifest a diagnosis. You will never hear this from a doctor. You will never hear this from a psychiatrist, or almost never. There's some exceptions, so, so excuse me for saying that. So for me, one of the massive important uh, keys for dealing with any kind of mental, mental, mental illness is avoiding this concept of diagnosis. Mm. So the and having yeah. a focus on 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 wellness instead. Mm -hmm. So the idea of diagnosis, kind of putting someone in a box, and then them being put in that box, they maybe don't fit it initially, but their their behaviours, their internal environment, because they're the the internal environment that your mind is creating, they will then fill that box. So they may not be depressed initially, but then in being told that they're depressed actually end up displaying the characteristics of clinical depression. Is that right? Sort of. You're, you're really close. And, and this is the other thing which I, which I always go, go at length to explain. There's a difference between depression and yeah. being depressed. Yeah. Okay. So, for example, if I have somebody who I love die, I'm going to be depressed. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't have to be depression. And unfortunately, that gets diagnosed as depression. So what, we're what you're talking about, and again, this is, this is kind of, I hope, I, I always try to stay away from jargon, and hopefully I'm not, I'm not piling jargon onto this discussion. But this is why, this is why um, we, we, we are hell-bent on this idea of diagnosis. And the reason we're hell-bent on this, diagnosis, this idea of diagnosis is because once you have a diagnosis, you can then identify which medication is appropriate for your diagnosis. Okay, so and this is where we have we have what I, what I, and again this is a firm part of the program I use is to distinguish between having depression as a diagnosis and as a symptom. Okay, so for example, if your gut is messed up, if you're drinking too much, if you're fighting with your with your with your partner, if your job is shit, you're going to have symptoms of depression. Now, if you correct those in your environment, those symptoms go away. And you don't have to have had the, 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 the diagnosis of being depressed. Okay? So, and I know it might sound like a subtle or a fine line, but that distinction I've used directly with people who have had so-called depression, they've adjusted their environment, and they have cured a chronic illness after 10 years. I've literally had this happen by explaining this. They've decided, I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to decide I don't have depression anymore because I can now control these elements of my environment. And these guys have given up medications and they have been, to use that word, cured. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really incredible when you make those distinction, distinctions and people don't do that often enough. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think sometimes it's a case of if you're given a diagnosis, then it gives you not, not necessarily an excuse, but it's something that potentially absolve some individuals of responsibility for for their environment for the decisions that they're making um what would you say if there is someone who has gone through their environment so they they're they're exercising they're making sure they're getting enough sleep their diet is on point such that their gut isn't suffering if you have someone who's done all of these things and they're still struggling with a with a depressive mood what would you say to them is there is there a space for the for the medication um i've, I've got to be really careful because 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 i'm still kind of uh you know employed by <laughs> by an organization okay yeah, um so 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 and, and that's a that's an absolutely fantastic question um so what i'll do is i'm not going to give you my opinion on this but i'm going to give you the 
the uh, details of the research that I look at, okay? And the research that I look at suggests that, and, and there's a few different tentacles, little, little, little areas where, where we could branch off with, with that question. It's a, really, it's a really deep question, believe it or not, okay? And the first, the first, part, of, the first part might be to talk, to, to say that in the case where those people kind of have covered all their bets, by doing an assessment that I tend to do, I would almost, in most cases, find out that there are some parts they're not covering. Okay, and again, this is this is due to the fact that the that the knowledge about how to tackle some of these areas is so is so ignored. It's so much ignored. So, for example, you talk about our diet and exercise, and you know, trying to look after this and this. I would guarantee that a lot of people, when they're covering those, are missing some tiny other fundamentals that are absolutely caning their great work elsewhere. I'd almost guarantee it, okay? So that would, that would make that cohort even smaller again. So then you might say, what about those guys who are doing this, 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 and this? That, for that smaller number, is there room for medications, okay? Yeah. So Kirsch put, there's a, there's a few, we talk about heroes, okay? And there's some literal heroes in, in the field of mental health. There's a guy called Peter, Dr. Peter Bregan, I don't know if you know much of his work. No. He, he's, he is absolutely brilliant. He single-handedly stopped the science, the, the, the pseudoscience of psychoneurosurgery in about the 70s, 80s. So this is lobotomies. This guy just about single-handedly stopped yeah. this in, throughout the world. He's got one of the most incredible stories. He writes a lot about, um, about antidepressants and the studies behind antidepressants. He's an incredible resource. The, the, the journal articles that he cites would suggest, and again, I've got an opinion about this, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to share that opinion, but the, the information that he tells us is that the full, literally, and, and uh, Irving Kirch actually suggests this as well, is the full effect of any antidepressant is the placebo effect. I have. And these guys, these guys know this stuff. That. They've been researching for a few years, and these guys are blatantly saying that the full effect of antidepressants is placebo. Yeah. So if you have the placebo effects, the placebo effects is something that can be achieved by definition without medication. All you have is something that is giving you side effects and your brain is effectively doing the, doing the rest. I, I, I ha again, have an opinion about that. And that what you're stating is, is word for word the message that these guys are stating, okay? But just to, just to clarify slightly, one of the things you said mm. is that... Um, it's it's uh, Kirsch does some amazing work about the placebo effect. And if you have, if I give you a salt tablet, for example, it can it can give you a placebo effect. If I give you a scalpel and make a little incision on your arm, a surgical placebo is far more powerful than a tablet placebo. Okay, the type of salt tablet, what color it is. And the fancier the name, it can have a more beneficial effect as a placebo. So there is some there is some science behind the actual giving of that substance. So it's not just specifically in your head. There's something else that goes on, and we don't know what that is. But there's a lot of people researching at this, and it is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And you absolutely nailed it about the, 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 the when you said that uh, you can take something, but you don't have to have the host of side effects, which go along with antidepressants, which, again, if you looked at the label behind, uh, about some antidepressants, the side effects are horrendous. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I was on, I took Zoloft um, or Sertraline for a, for a short period of time, for around about three months. Um, yep. 
I found there was no real, like, there was some improvement in my mood, but it kind of just muted everything. So the lows weren't as low, but also the highs weren't as high. So everything was just kind of turned down a bit. Um, and then with that, there was a host of side effects that came with it. So there was some gut discomfort, there was some sexual dysfunction. And when you're like a 21, 22 year old guy and you're struggling with both depression and you've got some sexual dysfunction thrown in there as well, and you're wondering what is going on, I came off of those. And then funnily enough, I started taking St. John's wort. So St. John's wort is obviously a plant. It's been shown to be as effective as Zoloft, as effective as sertraline and without any of the side effects. Now, whether or not that was a placebo effect again, because I wasn't experiencing the side effects, but I was experiencing the benefits, what does it matter? It, uh, again, it, it, it just astounds me at how marginalized and how discredited this placebo effect is. If it was the placebo effect, well done. It's what we should be looking for is the placebo effect. It's what we should be trying to generate because your body can heal itself, okay? One of the most amazing studies, uh, sorry, medical reports comes from, I can't remember this woman's name, but about an Irish woman in, I think, around the, the 80s or 90s who went to Lourdes, the place where you kind of get preyed upon and all this kind of stuff. She had Huntington's disease, okay? And I've actually seen Huntington's literally, and it's a devastating disease. It attacks your brain. It gives you a psychosis, and it's, it's invariably fatal. It, mm -hmm. nobody's, nobody should survive. This woman is in the medical journals as having gone to Lourdes and coming back in full remission. This wow. is the placebo effect. So, so when people discredit the placebo effect, it is one of the most mistaken things they can do. Um, again, it's another huge focus of, of the message I'm trying to propagate is how incredible the body is at healing if you give it a chance. Mm -hmm. So just circling back to what you were saying earlier about when you, you left intensive care, then you went into drug and alcohol addiction, and then you circled back into mental health. Um, before we start talking about mental health, could you take us through what the what were the things that you learned in the drug and alcohol addiction space, and how did you port your experience in real estate over into that space as well? Excellent question. So, so again, you know, I've mentioned that word heroes and, and you, you, when you, when you, I guess, embark on a certain journey, you, you, you stumble across some, some, some people, whether they're scientists, whether they're doctors, psychiatrists that just do the most incredible work. So, um, so one of the, so the CBT, uh, course that I had to teach was from a couple of guys, Miller and Dronick, I think they were, and basically they, they put this program together in America. I think it started in, in Florida where there was quite a high drug problem at the time. And they started this, again, from memory, sorry, I'm not so prepared, in around the, the mid-80s, I believe, or 90s, somewhere around then. And it's based on this, this uh, idea about stages of change we have, okay? And the stages of change are pre-contemplative, contemplative, action and maintenance. And there's some variations depending on the model you look at. Now, I'm absolutely convinced that you can use this drug addiction model to just about every single area of health. So for example, if you have diabetes, you're in a stage where you have this condition, but then ideally you wanna to change to be well. And some people are non-compliant with medication, for example, so you can use the same model. Mm -hmm. uh, you've frozen on my screen, Ben, at the moment, so I'm not too sure how my, my reception is going through. So you've frozen as well. 
Okay, fantastic. So, 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 and I was kind of thrown in at the deep end teaching this CBT course. I didn't have the training with it. Okay, so I started on this journey with with uh, a few very tough guys in a room. I think about about eight to begin with, and you had a few get dropping off and going to prison because they didn't complete the program. And again, with the way I like to kind of, I guess, use my craft, I like to be as upfront as possible. So I'm kind of going in there saying, "Hey, guys, this is new to me." I'm learning this with you guys. I can use my previous training to try and uh, communicate what's being said in this book. And I actually don't have an idea where this is going to go. So let's give it a go. And, and the guys I was working with really respected that. And we actually ended up having these really, really powerful sessions where these guys were thinking about a lot of their actions and about the harm they did and genuinely trying to make significant changes. Now, you, you have critics to the program. Because the rate of recidivism is really high. It's about 90%. Okay? So you might say to yourself, okay, why the hell do it then? Okay? But if you tear through, and again, this is why we have to really be careful about the information we look at. If you tear through the results, what you find is that about 90% of those people make at least some changes in the way they, they commit crimes. And some of them make dramatic changes in the way they commit crimes. So in other words, drug, drug use is considered a crime. They might only use drugs, but they might... Uh, have no violence attached after running through the program, okay? And for me, that's a massive success. So, so the, the strategies in the CBT program were absolutely on point. They were quite brilliant. So my uh, focus was to take those strategies and to treat people with mental health conditions as people who wanted to change from one point of unwellness to a point of wellness, okay? And it's incredible how many people don't do this in mental health. So, for example, it works best with people who are stuck in environmental changes, unable to make environmental changes. So, for example, I look back on, on the old Dennis who, you know, was sleep deprived and who was just, you used a great word, malaise, who was in this malaise kind of state. And at that stage, I knew I needed change, but I had no idea about how change worked and the science behind it. And if I had somebody like myself come along and kind of shaking me up at that stage and saying, hey, do you want to change? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what would you do in order to change? I'd do anything. Mm, are you sure? Mm, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you how change works. And if I had a very skilled um, professional leading me down a direction where there was no coming back from, I would, I would have been motivated to change. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of kind of... I guess, sly little traps I use to instigate change in people, okay? And it's, first of all, getting permission, and then the second is, is ensuring a commitment. So for, you, for yourself, for example, you, we all have this ego that centers around, I can do this, I can do, I can do that, et cetera, et cetera. Once I get your guarantee, and let's say, for example, you've, you've got drug and alcohol problems, and I, I kind of set you up for, for inescapable change, I might say something like this, well, it's a fairly hard journey ahead of you, Ben. Um, are you sure you want to come here with me? You've already said before that you're really hell-bent on change. I want to make sure you are. Can you really guarantee that you are hell-bent change? Yeah, I am. And I always wait for these, these magic words, I will do anything. And once I hear them, I'm like fantastic inside. I go, okay, you just said to me, you'll do anything. Can I just, can I just hear you say that again? Are you sure? And you go, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sick of this. I'll do anything. Okay. Once I got you there, I can come back later and go, do you remember that conversation, Ben, that we had when you said you'd do anything? Is you kind of sleeping in yesterday and not meeting your appointment? Is that you, maybe you got to have a rethink about that. Mm -hmm. And then you come along and you go, holy shit, Dennis. And I've had this conversation literally time and time and time again. You're right. 
I need to pick my game up here. I can get out of this. I'm the reason why I'm not moving forward and I'm going to do something about it. And then five, four, five, six weeks later, whatever it is, people are coming back saying, holy shit, my life's changed. Thank you so much. You, you changed my life. And I'm going, no, I didn't. I just thought you had to change your life. That's it. Mm-hmm. I think the, the ego gets a, a really bad rap these days. Like everyone's talking about how you need to manage your ego, how you need to make sure your ego is not getting in the way. But like, as you say, it can be an incredibly powerful tool. So when, when you're talking to me in this hypothetical scenario, trying to get that, I'll do anything. That's just, you're baiting someone to a certain extent. You're trying to get them to bite. You're trying to, you're well, challenging them. You're saying they're not going to be able to do it in not so many words. Challenging, absolutely. That, as soon as you get that kind of, that clamp down, that visceral reaction of I'll do anything, that's it. That's investment. Absolutely. And, and it, it is, it is so powerful. It is so powerful. I've, I've had colleagues who've sit, sat in with, with my strategies and these guys have been working in mental health for, for you know, 15, 20 years and they walk away going, wow. And, and again, I, I'm not this, I, I've, I've only been working in those kind of settings for about seven or eight years. But mm-hmm. I guess my forte is, is recognizing really good science and really good techniques and then applying them. Mm-hmm. So you you mentioned um, when you were dealing with drug and alcohol addiction, there were four stages. There was pre-contemplative, contemplative, action, and then maintenance. Um, maintenance or was it? Yes. What well, are well, those? Well. What are those stages? What do they mean in this instance? Excellent. And then how have you kind of ported those over into mental health? Excellent question. Excellent, excellent question. So, so the, there's this model that kind of came out in about the 1970s, okay, and, and it's called the stages of change. And I think it was from a couple of uh, psychologists in 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 uh, those northern European countries, Sweden or Denmark or someplace around there. I can't quite remember. Sorry. Um, and they the, they are kind of some spins on a model. Some people add a few extra stages. You don't really need to, okay. But but uh, let's say you are um, you're, you you've you've had a breakup. You've been drinking too much. You, you're, you, 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 everybody's telling you you're drinking too much. You come and see me, okay? I've got a, the, the very first thing I should be trying to do is define which stage of change you're at, okay? So I'll say something like this to you, Ben. I'll say, Ben, okay, you're drinking a fair, I'll have asked you the question. I'll say, you're drinking a fair bit uh, here. You're drinking 20 drinks in a day. You're kind of getting drunk every day. You've lost your job. You, 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 there's a fair bit of shit going along with, with your drinking. I think maybe it's time you change this. You're going, to, you're going to have a few different responses depending on the stage of change you're at. Your very first response might be, hey, man, stuff you. I like my drinking. It's my only relief I get. All my friends drink. I'm never giving up. Tell me something else. That's mm-hmm. pre-contemplation. It means you are not interested. Okay? The next stage is, you know, maybe the night before your missus has dumped you. Okay, and you're feeling a little bit remorseful and you think, oh, my God, maybe alcohol is, is, is having an effect. And I say that to you and, you and you say to me, you know what, Dennis, maybe I should think about it. That's contemplation. So, so again, I'm hell bent on, on, on simplifying these sciences. They don't have to be complex. Okay, then the next stage is you could almost argue the fact that you've come to see me in a drug and alcohol setting means that you're in the action stage. Okay, I would say that that's maybe pushing a little bit too far because you're still contemplating, you're still trying to work out, you're needing my guidance to work it out. But if you argued, hey, listen, I'm sitting here, I'm taking action, I'd say, yeah, you you, you could argue that as well. So then the action stage is where you actually start putting, you you can add in there the preparation stage if you want. Okay, so, but I don't think you need to contemplate, you need to complicate it. But the action stage 
is where you're starting to put down things that'll actually keep you safe. So you might have started your AA meetings. You might be trying to reduce your drinking. You might even be abstaining your drinking. You might be avoiding high-risk situations, on and on. That's the action. And unfortunately, with any kind of addiction, we have a thing called relapse. So sometimes I add relapse into that model of stage of change because then I can talk about a thing called relapse prevention, okay? And then the most important part is this thing called maintenance. And maintenance is... Along with maintenance, and I'm kind of going along a drug and alcohol line now, so I'm, we're, we're digressing slightly, but I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important and it, it's very fascinating. But we have a thing called erosion of skills. So the amount of times I've seen people in drug and alcohol setting come to me and say, out of the blue, I relapsed. Okay, it was never out of the blue. These guys for two or three years were just kicking goals with what they're doing. They were avoiding walking past the pub. They were managing their stress. They were watching their diet. They were, they were taking different routes home so they wouldn't walk bottle shops, walk past bottle shops. And, and you hear statements like this. After a while, I was so confident. I was doing so well. I met John, who was my ex-drinking partner, and I could sit in the pub with water in front of him. I was doing so well. No, 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 no. That was your skills getting eroded. So that's a perfect example. So that, that feeling, in, again, in this drug and alcohol context, that feeling of like you're doing so well that you start giving yourself that little bit more laxity in terms of what you accept. Yes. So it feels like you're doing Absolutely. well, but then you start going to the pub and you're only drinking water. You start seeing your old drinking buddy. And even though it may not be in the pub, he's a guy that the context you used to share with him was getting drunk. So then over time, these things, these things build up. Absolutely. Fascinating. And it's called, you know, we, we have all these terms for it. This, that, that particular one is called a high-risk situation. Mm -hmm. And part of managing relapse is avoiding high-risk situations. Yeah. Okay. So don't put yourself in the situation to start with, and then everything will be that much easier. Okay. So if it was um, working, don't change it. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that <laughs> when you've had your, um, your colleagues sit in with you on some of these sessions, they've, they've been quite surprised in terms of the results that you've been getting um has has the reaction to what you've been doing always been positive no <laughs> <laughs> how is that what what sort of reactions do you normally get is it is it more of like um, an I, pushback more of an individual reaction or is there is there something broader going on here um Okay, I, 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 I'm not going to talk about my own situation here, but I, I will talk about some scenarios that, that I'm aware of where people have been, um, have been criticized and chastised because of the dangers and the risks that they have given to patients and clients because of explaining the risks associated with medication. And I'll clarify that. What I mean by that is that some clinicians may find their intentions and, and their, their, their strategies um, held under intense scrutiny because if you have somebody who might be suicidal, for example, or who is depressed, if your information is leading them to make a decision to move away from antidepressants, you are putting their lives at risk and in danger. Mm-hmm. And is that because if they, they move is away from antidepressants? Regard, regard. Is that, is that because antidepressants... Regardless of what science says, by the way. Quickly, 
Um, there can be like a dip in depression. So if you're struggling with suicide and you're already on antidepressants, if you come off them, things can get worse before they get better. Is, is that the reason for this? There's, there's a lot of different reasons for it. And one of the reason, one of the kind of scenarios that does happen is this risk adverse setting we find ourselves in. Okay. And this playing it safe mentality that we have. I personally believe in advocating for people's efficacy. Okay. So even if you felt that you might be suicidal, I would feel as part of my journey with you is to tell you that regardless of your suicidality, you are good enough and you're strong enough to succeed on your own. And I give you those tools in order to do that. Unfortunately, there, are, there would be a lot of people who, as soon as you mention the word suicide, would go possibly as far as to section you and to put you in hospital under 24-hour supervision because of the risk associated with you going away and killing yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, so that, that's a very difficult bridge to cross. The other thing which I think is, 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 is incredibly important is trust. And even though you've said to me that you are, are, are kind of thinking of having suicidal thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, if I can qualify and clarify with you and I can ask you, hey, Ben, I know you're going through a really tough time. Can you guarantee me that you're going to be alive tomorrow and you're going to come back and see me? And you give me your word. I'm, I'm one of the clinicians who will accept that. And I think it's, it's horrendous if I didn't take you at face value, and this happens a lot, and I say, hey man, you know what, with all the stuff you said, you're ticking all these high-risk boxes, even though you give me your word, I've got to take you, I've got to take you to hospital. And unfortunately, that's happening more and more and more often, and I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. So is it when, when someone is ticking all of these high-risk boxes, um, I mean, I personally, I know I've been in situations um, relatively recently whereby if I'd spoken to a mental health professional and they'd taken me through this questionnaire, then I would have definitely come out as high risk. It, is wow. there this kind of worry that the, the patient's word in this context is no longer valid because of the headspace that they find themselves in? Yes. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's, very, it's very demeaning and it's very condescending because you know, like yourself, for example, even though you're in that headspace, you still have your integrity, you still have your dignity. And, and I would still say that even then, if you, if, and, and here's the interesting thing that, that we don't take into account. The people who are killing themselves are not going to see me. They're planning at home. They're over it. If yeah. you've rocked up to see me, I know that you're looking for help. And I know that some of the words that you're using are only the words that your mind is throwing out at you. And I can help you reframe that. And you're probably not going to kill yourself. Okay. And the amount of times who are, that I've gone on this journey with people who've been highly suicidal and they've gone from, I am going to kill myself. And after I explain, uh, it takes, it's about a 10 minute little chat I have with these people about how this works. And after I explain it, they, they, their reply is something like this. Yeah, you're right. I was so frustrated and I was so hurt and I was so, I was in such despair. This was the only way I knew how to express myself. But in actual fact, I don't want to really want to kill myself. I just want to have answers and solutions. And if I get them, I'll be okay. Please help me. Mm -hmm. So would you be willing to, to do like a, a dummy of that chat, like a little dummy run? I can come to you as a, I can come to you as a patient potentially. And then we go through that process. Yeah. 
absolutely. And so, so, so that would be you screaming at me, maybe, and saying, I'm going to kill myself. I'm finished. I'm over it. I, I can't cope anymore. This is it. I'm fucking, I'm going to do it. Excuse my, my language. No, okay? no, no, no. <laughs> and, and one of the most powerful things you can do, and again, this, this comes back to some psychological techniques that, that are really, really important, is reflection. Okay. Sometimes, you, and, it, and, it, and it, 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 it takes a, a little bit of practice to get this, but anybody can kind of do it if they, if they know the, the underlying sciences behind it, okay? One of the most powerful things you can do with anybody is use three word, four words. So what you're saying is, mm -hmm. actually it's five words, my apologies. So my technique with this would be, would be to, if you approach me like this, it would be something like this. So Ben, I'm hearing you. So what you're saying is that you feel absolutely at the end of your tether, you feel nobody's listening to you, you feel nobody understands you, you feel absolutely horrendous, and you think that you could kill yourself at any given moment. The person has been trying to repeat this time and time again to about 10 different people. Nobody's reframed it back, and they stop in their tracks, and their jaws drop, and they go, yeah, you're listening, man. That's right. And then they give you something else and you reframe that so what you're saying is that this horrendous journey you've been on this person's been picking on you your your partner has been treating you terribly you're not appreciated at work you feel nobody's listening to you you're, you've got stress with with your bills and nobody understands what a load you're carrying on your shoulders is that right my god <laughs> and people just erupt in tears it's incredibly mm -hmm. powerful mm -hmm. and and you and they hug you and they go, thank you for listening. I feel better now. I, I've taken people it, during a 90-minute process from being highly suicidal to, having, to, to saying their moods are 8 out of 10. Wow. Okay? And the reason has been that, 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 that this, this, this process where they, where they go, wow, I have, I, this is the first time in three years I've had hope. You've told me how my mental health works. You've told me some things that I can control. I can control my diet. I never knew about serotonin. I never knew that sitting in front of telly and not moving my body and, 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 and activating my lymphatic system, I didn't know this was killing me. I didn't know that I can talk to people and explain myself. Literally, and, and they walk away elated. Mm. Okay? And, and unfortunately, people don't believe that that's possible. Yeah, I mean... From, from my experience, if there is someone who is actively listening to you, so this the reframing and the, the paraphrasing that you kind of go through is like, okay, so this is what you're saying. This is, this is my understanding of what it is that you've said to me. Is that right? And then when someone actually gets that, when, I, when someone hits that on the head, when you're in that headspace, it's like, oh my God, like this person actually knows what it is that I'm going through. They can actually appreciate what it is that I'm going through because like, sometimes you'll go and you'll speak to someone and they'll obviously, being a clinician or being a professional, they'll have your best interests at heart. But they'll, you'll end up coming back with things like, oh, that must be terrible or, oh, that must be really hard or stuff like that. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake, like, of course it's fucking hard. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't hard. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's, please carry on. That's that's okay. It's 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 really interesting because because in in the mental health professional settings, the amount of times I've heard my colleagues do that, it's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> and and these guys are are are, were very well qualified psychiatrists and psychologists. And I'm looking, going, are you serious? Are you serious? Mm -hmm. And and it's 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 really 
see, I sometimes it's it's such a powerful thing to do, just reflecting that I've broken down in tears. And my hairs and my arms are standing up. It is, it is such an, a, powerful, a powerful thing when, when you see that relief drop off somebody who is acutely distressed. And especially when they're kind of hugging you and bawling. So I've, I've been in floods of tears myself, which creates an even better rapport. Oh, for sure. Like if you're, if you're able to not so much mirror the emotion, but if you, it's, that's the difference between sympathy and empathy, isn't it? Like if yes, you're yes. like, oh, that must be really difficult. Oh, you must be really struggling. Tell her that must be really hard. It's like, well, yeah, of course it fucking is. Like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't. But then if you've got someone who is genuinely like empathizing with you, feeling what you're feeling, and if you're like, if you end up both bursting into tears, then all better, all the better for it. Then you have that much, that incredibly strong bond. Absolutely, and I'm not. I'm not sitting there trying to trying to you know get in their headspace. Far from yeah. it. I'm embarrassed when I'm crying. But yeah. it's just it's just this. I guess this beautiful synchrony that can happen when you've got two people who are, are looking for this one goal of a way forward yeah yeah for sure what do you think are the so kind of circling back to a slightly different topic but in the same space what do you think are the the biggest problems that are facing the mental health industry today um lar- big large industry large industry and this is a massive focus of the program that, that i that i've got that i put together okay and unfortunately mental health is compartmentalized compartmentalized here it's compartmentalized in 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 this you know squishy little thing that sits inside our heads it shouldn't be maybe 30 percent can be okay but we've got we've got massive industrial issues that are massively responsible for most mental health problems and i'll, I'll break that down down for you and obviously i have to be pretty superficial because i because the, the kind of remedy is really in depth okay but superficially okay we have uh the impact of mono farming yeah okay mono mono farming it means that we, all our foods are laden with herbicides and pesticides it also means that we don't have there's a brilliant doctor she's her name is stasha gomanak okay she talks about the importance of some vitamins and minerals in relation to forming micronutrients and micronutrients are responsible for neurotransmitters this is how we make neurotransmitters you know i'm i'm the only person i've ever heard in my area talk about this and when I say my area, I'm talking about my local geographical area, as mm-hmm. opposed to some brilliant people who talk about this stuff uh, on, on other stages. Okay, So essentially, micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, are responsible for making neurotransmitters. All our food, just about everywhere, is nutrient deficient. Okay, If we can correct this by eating organic, wholesome, wholesome foods... We've got a massive head start on getting the building blocks into our systems that can give us the chemicals that are responsible for our brain activity. Mm -hmm. This is the first thing. The second part, which is absolutely massive, is the impact of blue light and also some other electromagnetic frequencies. Mm -hmm. Okay, There are massive amounts of studies done on animals. Little rats and mice, you, you take their saliva and you can see their cortisol response rays when you put them in front of blue lights. Okay, we are glued to our televisions, to our laptops, to our screens. And if you're in a mild cortisol response, you can't heal. There's some excellent guys, for, uh, for example, Bruce Lipton, Greg Braden, a few of these, these guys are brilliant. These guys are professors that talk a lot about this and they use some amazing research. Okay, so again, another industry, Samsung, Apple, they're not going to tell you, hey, man, you should cut back on your screen time because it might be affecting your mental health a little bit. Okay, so insomnia alone can cause depression and anxiety. Just insomnia. 
notwithstanding the trauma you had in the army or, or the, the breakup of your marriage, just insomnia. You don't hear this, okay? So as part of treating insomnia, you have to be careful with blue light, especially before you go to sleep. So you're malnourished, your sleeping is compromised because of your use of technology, okay? And, uh, sorry, I'm on a bit of a rant here. There's a couple of more components. This, 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 this blatant, um, unfortunately, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just be a little bit cagey about how I, how I phrase this, but there would be some people who would say that drug companies have an interest in making sales as opposed to actually healing people when it comes to mental health. And the framework which underpins how we assess mental health has been developed by drug companies. So, so for example, a lot of the scales and the scores that we use to assess and rate people for their mental health are very, very, I feel, very, very fundamentally flawed. They lead people towards a direction where you're going to tick some specific boxes. I've looked at some of these scales myself. If I'm in a particularly bad frame of mind, I'm going to be taken very high on them, even though I would never classify myself as having depression and anxiety. Okay, so and if you if you if you remember when we're seeing these people who are sick, we're seeing them at their worst. Okay, we don't have this 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 um fo this this direct focus on the good stuff that happened. They were strong, they were brilliant, they were happy, they were charismatic. They 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 had that great relationship. They could perform well and in, in their job. And when you remind them that that's who they were and they could be, they kind of go, oh yeah. Maybe, maybe my, my view is a little bit weighted by the severity of the situation I'm in right now. And we're not doing that enough. Mm. So what was the, was that number, number four as well? So you had... Um, the, uh, sorry, in relation to... So you had the, the impact of micronutrients and nutrient deficiencies and monofarming. Um, yep. The impact of blue light on circadian rhythms and how that can play yep. into things like insomnia. Um, yep. the assessments that are used because potentially there's more money in treatment than there is in cure. What was yep. the, the fourth, the, um, the fourth area? Um, so, 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 so I've, I've over, I've overlapped a few different areas. Um, addiction is certainly in there. So mm -hmm. you have, you have again, this, this addiction response that would not only the blue light effect from, from uh, computers and screens, but also that dopamine response that we get from, you know, it's almost like the game, the, the, the slot machine effect. Okay, so you have these massive companies who, who absolutely have these massive companies. And these guys are literally spending over the years billions, not millions, billions in psychological research. They're recruiting from, from top psychologists and neuroscientists around the world. So when we think about Facebook and, and, and Google and any other of the, a number of these social media platforms, search engines being these kind of benign and, and simple kind of concepts to help us out in our daily lives. They are being backed by the most incredibly brilliant minds and deep, deep, deep science. Mm -hmm. So the, the, so when, when I talk about addiction, I'm not talking about the classics of, you know, methamphetamines or alcohol or whatever. I'm actually talking about addiction at all sorts of layers from heavy, serious drug addiction down to things that you don't consider as an addiction. But if you are finding, and I, I'm, I'm guilty of this, by the way, so I'm certainly not pulling myself up as this kind of saint who's taking all these boxes. But if you find yourself checking your LinkedIn uh, compulsively, that's an addiction. 
And, and I, a lot of my recent posts on LinkedIn are exactly about that and about strategies that I'm having to put into play in order to not have this affect my life negatively because it's a, such a fine balance. And I'm aware of this stuff. And even I find I'm getting dragged in. So how the hell are people who have no background in, in health or mental health meant to survive? It's just a minefield. Have you read a So book I guess that the, the final kind of component is, is, is the information in the zeitgeist, the information that's out there. And that's that you're not hearing the stuff I'm talking about in the zeitgeist very regularly. Have you heard of a book called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport? Um, I, yeah, no. I've heard of Cal Newport and I, I, I can't remember recent. that specific title, but I've heard of Newport and, he, and I've seen some of his stuff and it's brilliant. It's the most recent one that's just come out. Um, yeah. It's talking about exactly what you're talking about there. So how the, yeah. the big companies like Google, Facebook, so on and so forth are effectively now they're not really providing any value. They're just gaming for attention. So it explores how the, um, their business is set up in such a way that they are perpetually researching how they can keep people engaged with their devices for longer and longer and longer. And one of the things that he talks about is um, notifications specifically and how the notification icon for Facebook when Facebook first came out was blue. So, so Blue is a very kind of unobtrusive color, and now it's red. Why is it red? Because red grabs your attention more effectively. Oh, we lost connection. out there not sure what happened there did you get any of that <laughs> you got me back then yeah i've got you back can you hear me i i got i got i got a i got um it in little sound bites but i think i can i can i can uh, get the gist of it and you were basically saying about how uh cal basically is saying more or less the same thing which that i'm saying about the, the depth of research that goes into hooking us in and, and i i got the end of it before you dropped out about the 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 um, severity of notifications and, it, and the impact on your mental health. Yeah, yeah, and how if you, like, the, the Facebook icon went from being blue, which is very unobtrusive, to red. Why did it go red? Red grabs your attention. So, so you, 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 your kind of speech came through really broken up there. But again, I think I got that. And I think you were talking about the impact of colors in yep. relation to how we, we get uh, hooked into things. And you're absolutely right. Blue is, is a very, very compulsive color. Okay. And a lot of the, the points of the program that, that, I, that I talk about in relation to sleep are the importance of circadian rhythms. It's no coincidence that the sky is blue. That's why we wake up. Okay, so what it does is it stimulates cortisol. It switches off this little thing called melatonin, which is the thing we need to get to sleep. And the amount of times I've talked to people who've got mental health problems, knowing that insomnia causes depression and anxiety, and I ask them, it's a massive part of my assessment, what do you do before you go to sleep? Um, 
uh, I kind of chill out. No, I want you to be really specific. Uh, well, I guess I watch some television. No, I want you to be really specific. What time do you start watching your pro? Well, I watch Netflix that maybe seven o'clock. And do you check your phone when you're watching Netflix? Huh? Yeah, of course. Okay, what do you do just before you put your head in the pillow? Where is your phone sitting? Oh, I look at my phone and it's beside my, and you wonder why you've got insomnia. So could you maybe consider that insomnia on its own can cause depression and anxiety, and maybe your depression and anxiety is not a diagnosis, but a symptom of your insomnia. And if you look at, and food also relates to your sleep, by the way, if you look at managing the control of your devices and improve your sleep, maybe you might not have depression. And actually that in fact is sometimes the case. So I'm not trying to trivialize the diagnosis of depression, but what I am trying to do is highlight the importance of addressing things that are causing the, 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 the symptoms that we know, sorry, to, 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 I got a little bit garbled up there. What I'm talking about is addressing the things that we know cause the symptoms of depression. Mm -hmm. So get, rule them out first, and then we can look for a diagnosis of depression. Otherwise, you've just got symptoms which are resembling depression. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned that you have a program that you take people through. Could you tell us a yeah, bit so about basically, yeah, thanks. Thanks for giving me a bit of time to talk about that. But um, so, so essentially, I, I've had I've had a, for the last five years a really, really um, impactful, I guess, um, mini program that I, I I've taken people through personally in my mental health work. Okay, so I get people in, and I've got a really clear strategy. The strategy is to first of all do do an assessment which identifies those things that people have going wrong. Okay, then the next part is to validate what they're saying. And this creates rapport, but it also tells you that you understand the person. But what it does is it puts, it puts a, I guess, a framework in place where the person doesn't feel compelled to repeat themselves again and again and again. So if they do, a, a huge part of what I do is a thing called reflective listening. If they are saying in four different ways, you haven't heard me, this is wrong, then I will keep repeating what they're saying until I get it right. So it might be, Okay, so what you're telling me is that the relationship you have with this person is impacting on your life and it's not quite working out and this is why. No, that's not what I said. I said that the job is making my mood bad and the... Okay, sorry, I got that wrong. So what you're saying is your job puts your mood in a bad frame area and then your mood is impacting it. So I might have to do that four times before the person goes, finally, yeah, that's right, you get it. And I'll go, okay, have I missed anything here? Have I understood everything you're saying here? Then I'll summarize everything. And I'll say, okay, from the start, you came here because initially this was your main problem. Your job's not working well. Your relationship's not working well. I think you said you've got this problem with your life here. You eat this, you watch this, et cetera, et cetera. Have I missed anything? And the person sitting there, wow, no, I think you covered it all. I feel really heard. I feel really listened to. And that's really important, okay, because it allows me then to do what I need to do. So the structure, with it, it takes usually about 90 minutes to about two, two, and a, two and a half hours, depending on the complexity, okay? And often I run over time. Is educating people about how the body works in relation to stress. I take them through how adrenaline works in your body, how cortisol works in your body, how melatonin works in your body, okay? Once you get that, you take them through how psychology works. I give them a crash course on a thing called neuroplasticity and the stages of change. Once people see how neuroplasticity and networks can form in your brain and the stage of change, and they realize that they can do it, then you can put in a plan in place. 
Then I take them through how your gut works, how the microbiome system works and how, what it's responsible for. And then I take them through how addiction works. And you can usually relate lots of different addictions like the ones we talked about. Then I take them through the effects of blue light. At the end of a 90 minute odd session, we have about 12 to 14 different points on a really, I take them how to, through how to plan, okay? There's a whole science of planning. Once you know how to plan effectively, okay, then you can actually maybe achieve a result and a goal. So then I give them the plan that can help fix their mental health problems. So my initial, my initial thoughts were to do something similar, but the more I was digging to validate the elements of the program, the bigger it got, okay? So it got to me initially having this concept of putting about an, maybe a 90-minute to two-hour video based on what I do together. It turned into a 24-chapter program where you know, you kind of fall down these rabbit holes and you even get surprised yourself with how valid the science is and more importantly, how, how brilliant the science is. Okay, so it's basically a 25-chapter program, which would, if I, if, I had, if I had received this program myself at the beginning of my nursing career, I would have known far more than a lot of mental health professionals I've worked with by just doing this program, okay? And if I'd received it myself, when I started working in mental health, I would have been kicking goals a lot sooner. Okay, so and, and it's not about bragging. It's just it's just it's just about highlighting the the, the wealth of of crucial information, like like um, like um, the information you were talking about before. That's just routinely ignored, and it's just compiled into this three part program. Where first of all, you get how the body works, then you get a deeper dive, and then you get your solutions at the end. And it's got resources with it, diet resources and communication resources to teach you how to use communication techniques, uh, sleep, sleep hygiene resources, and it also involves a couple of one-on-ones with myself. So, yeah. Fantastic. Cool. So we are, we're just over the hour now. Um, yep. If someone's enjoyed the conversation, how could they get in contact with you? What's the easiest way for them to do that? Direct message me on LinkedIn, fantastic platform. I'm, I'm only kind of fairly new to it. I've only been using it for about three months. And it's, it's kind of functionality, meeting people like yourself. It's, it's fantastic. So, yeah, connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. I guess there'll be some links and, and whatnot elsewhere. I've also got a YouTube channel. My focus has been off the YouTube a little bit because of LinkedIn. I'm putting more content there. But you can, you can get a really good understanding of my motives if you have a look at the YouTube channel. It's called The Myths, The Mistakes, The Mechanics of Happiness. Okay? And basically, I use that, that alliteration really deliberately. There's so many myths out there. We, we, we inadvertently are, are putting mistakes in front of people as health professionals. And once you get the mechanics of how stuff works, you can actually have success in treating your mental health. Mm-hmm. I'll make sure that I put those, uh, these links in the show notes. Now, one, um, one question that I like to ask all of my guests is, as the focus of this, this podcast, one of the focuses is mental health. Um, if there is someone who is listening to this right now and they find they are really struggling, what is one thing that they could do that would help them move forward? Great, great, great question. You have to use this thing in the front of your face. It's called a mouth and you have to open it and you have to ask for help. And once you do that, you might be amazed at who comes to the party to help you out. Some of people who you least expect 
can give you the most hope and give you the, mo the, the, best, the best information ever. So I'm, I know we're a little bit short of time, but uh, I'll just give you a little bit of an anecdote that worked for me. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, recently kind of coming to the end of finishing this program, I was getting fairly overwhelmed with trying to put content on LinkedIn and finish off this program and set up my website. And I just felt absolutely frazzled okay and my mood was dropping and I just was getting a bit irritable and I happened to call a really good friend of mine I actually made a little uh, video about this and I put it on LinkedIn about four or five months ago called him up about something else entirely I this guy gave me the best mental health counseling I could have ever gotten and he just asked me a few questions he's gone, oh you sound a bit stressed I'm like yeah I'm pretty stressed but oh, da, 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 da. he reflected my position he's gone so you're really busy with blah. I felt this relief I was going, where did you learn this shit? I was thinking this to myself. And then he just gave me some solid advice. He says, hey, you know what? My mother caught me up with this about three weeks ago because I was getting overwhelmed with tax from this and this. And she said, do this, 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 and this. I was like, wow, I've just had some of the best counseling I've ever had from somebody who's got nothing to do with mental health. Cool. If you're struggling, talk, ask for help. Perfect. Absolutely, absolutely, and 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 to the to the to the people who you don't just plan. It might be this professional. Don't plan. You need somebody in a position of of experience. It's not necessarily the case. This connection, this lack of connection that we now have through our devices, is something that's impairing our health. So ideally, make it one on one. If it can't be one on one, use the next best step, which is to reach out via online. And and people can give me. Uh, send me a message i'm happy to talk to somebody i think it's more, way more of a priority to take people back from a brink than to make some money so i'm happy to, to help people out obviously if it gets too involved i'm gonna have to put limits on it but uh you know if there's a crisis uh, um, please give me a call fantastic awesome seems like the the perfect place to finish thank you very much indeed for doing this Dennis. excellent it's been it's been a ben, great time. i love this conversation thank you so much Hopefully people can take some value from this and then make some, make some changes if they need to or get in contact with you if they feel that is the prudent thing to do. Fantastic. Really appreciate your time also. Thank you very much. That was Rolling Forward. I hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you enjoyed this episode or you feel that there is something that I should be talking about or someone that I should be talking to, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.